final investigator I met with was Dr. Julia White, and to begin, she commented on partial breast irradiation. I think partial breast irradiation, as you may know, started off with this very complex, what we call multi-catheter temporary brachytherapy implant. And it's very effective. I mean, that's where all the longest term data is, but it's very complex and it's very time consuming. In that, it would have remained a boutique treatment if it was just that. Really in the early 2000s was the development of what was then the mammocyte, which is a a single entry brachytherapy device that gets placed into the lumpectomy cavity after the surgery. The patient keeps it in place for several days and the radiation is delivered through this one catheter. And now there are other manufacturers and products out there. And they're really good because it simplifies the brachytherapy. Surgeons can place them in. Radiation oncologists can place them in. We can wait for final pathology. So that technology advancement really made it partial breast irradiation with a brachytherapy approach the easiest. It really widened and made that technology accessible. Could I just ask what clinical situations you can't use that technique? Unfortunately, where there's very little breast tissue, if you think of it as a large, you know, there's a balloon that expands up to three to four centimeters, so about two inches almost, or an inch and a half to two inches. And so in the very extremes of the breast, that can be uncomfortable. It also can over-radiate or give too much dose when it's close to the skin or down to the chest wall. And then there's patients who just can't tolerate it. That's uncommon in the right hands, but it does happen where they get an infection, which is in a small few percent that happens. So those are the ones where it's just not feasible. The other thing is you still have to have a brachytherapy device. You have to have an HDR, a high dose rate brachytherapy device. So it's a piece of equipment that not every radiation oncology center has. They don't have that expertise. It requires special training, special licensing to monitor it. So it broadens the accessibility of partial breast radiation, but still limits it in that you have to have some special equipment. External beam devices, you know, every radiation center has an external beam machine, a linear accelerator. That's what we call 3D conformal radiation therapy, and then intensity modulated radiation therapy, as has been reported in the Florence study. And those probably are the ones that have the broadest accessibility, but are also the ones where we see the most heterogeneity or the biggest differences from institution to institution and how they're delivering it. So that, I think, a real opportunity for us to learn more in terms of best practices with that. There's some data that the 3D conformal radiation therapy can lead to worse scarring in the breast and a poor cosmetic result. Well, that was reported by the Ontario Clinical Oncology Group in their rapid trial, while the Florence Group with their intensity modulated radiation therapy external beam actually showed better cosmetic results with the partial breast. So we just have a lot to learn in terms of the cosmetic results. If you look at it from a dosimetry point of view and understanding the variation that you were just mentioning, is there any advantage at all to using a mammocyte type device or any situations where it presents an advantage? Obviously, it's less convenient. You know, I think the advantage of it is that it's all internal radiation. You're not worrying about the radiation beam leaving its path. So you're not worried about that dose. You know, we target the lumpectomy cavity. But every radiation beam has a path to get to the target. It's not spreading that low dose around. So when you compare the dose around a single-entry device balloon-type brachytherapy 
the dose is tightly wound around that. Now, while with the external beam, there is going to be dose that can go through the lung, it can go through the heart still. The dose to the unaffected portion of the breast is larger, the low dose. So that's one of the advantages, I personally think, of the internal radiation with a brachytherapy device. The downside of the brachytherapy device is in order to deliver it around the catheters, it gives a very high dose to the breast tissue immediately adjacent to the device, up to 200%. And I think people using that device have to be very mindful of that because it too has its own potential complications. I don't know if there have been patterns of care studies that look at what people are actually doing in practice. Do you have any sense for what people are doing and what do you do yourself? So, you know, what's been done in practice so far has really been, I think you're seeing a rise of the external beam methods, but so far it's really been predominated by the single entry brachytherapy devices. Because one, I think the surgeons have access to that. So they come into the conversation about what's the radiation therapy after lumpectomy. I think also it has the longest, without phase three data, it has the longest prospective data behind it. I have all of these options available to me. And when I talk to a patient, some of them will have read about it and they'll say, I want, even they want the multi-catheter brachytherapy. But most will say, if I don't have to have another surgical procedure, if I can do that without having a device put in my breast, that would be my preference. So I know you've talked about the fact and you mentioned the variation with external beam methods and also this issue of you know, how experience changes the way people do things. What do you think the variables are that are changing the way people actually execute these procedures? So I think we're really probably more caught up than we think. You know, the publications have come out from these trials that were really run, you know, about, you know, seven or eight years ago, and now we're looking at them. They opened up in 2008, 2009. So what we're reporting about um, these poor outcomes, these are the first time these trials were run in some of these populations. I think what we have learned is that you have to be mindful. The surgeon and the radiation oncologist need to work together, that certain cavities, if you have a lumpectomy cavity that's, you know, 20 to 25% of the entire breast, that's someone that wrapping a high dose around that with external beam is probably not going to be as a good cosmetic outcome. It's someone who has a much larger ratio of lumpectomy cavity. The lumpectomy cavity is much smaller in comparison to the large breast. So some of those same basic things we've been using all along in terms of looking at the size of the surgical cavity relative to the whole breast. There are other places that are not as forgiving. I think the upper inner quadrant of the breast has always been a difficult place cosmetically in breast conservation. And I think if you're going to put a high dose around the lumpectomy cavity there, you might see that's another area where that patient might actually be better off with a whole breast technique, like especially now with hypofractionation, where she's just having 15 to 16 treatments as opposed to the standard 25 to 30. I think that's another case where we'll learn in the future. I suspect that partial breast radiation and external beam radiation with whole breast radiotherapy is going to come out very similarly for a large portion of our patients. And really what the deciding factor will be for women um, and providers will be, how does the breast look? You know, what are the toxicities? I'd like to get your thoughts on management of DCIS, always an interesting and controversial issue, again, from the radiation oncology perspective. I'm curious where things are today, first of all, again, in terms of margins and the issue of avoiding radiation therapy in select patients and the issue of genomic assays such as the oncotype assay for DCIS. 
So I think DCIS is fascinating. I think, as you know, if you look at the last kind of decade and a half, there's been a lot more DCIS diagnosed. I mean, I look at when I started off in residency, I think it was then, I remember memorizing for one of my in-service exams, I think it was between around 20,000 per year were being diagnosed, and now it's over 60,000. But if you look at who's actually being detected based on, you know, improvements in imaging and how we've reclassified our pathologic criteria, it's really low-grade DCIS that has been kind of the excess new detection that we're having. And I think, in my mind, that's where the controversy really is. I think we would all agree that there is a form of DCIS that is... Um, a nuclear grade three that is insensitive to hormones. It might be HER2 new positive if future studies play out. That is truly a precursor to invasive disease, and those patients are at high risk, and those are the patients. I think there's strong data from the prior four randomized trials with lumpectomy radiotherapy that we should use breast radiotherapy to reduce their risk of their first invasive breast cancer. I think it gets more confusing when you have a lower risk DCIS in terms of what the benefits of that patient is for after lumpectomy of additional radiotherapy or five years of anti-endocrine therapy or unilateral mastectomy or bilateral mastectomy. Because for, let's give it a 61-year-old with a 12-millimeter grade 1 DCIS with one to two margins around it, whether she does nothing after that, no additional surgery, or whether she has breast radiotherapy or breast radiotherapy plus or minus tamoxifen or other way around, or now anastrozole, or whether she has a unilateral mastectomy or bilateral mastectomy, the likelihood that she's going to be alive and well and free of breast cancer 15 years from now is exactly the same, right? And as I tell every patient with that diagnosis, if she wants to extend her life, she should probably go walk three times a day because that's going to be more life-saving than any of those cancer interventions because we've criminalized low-grade DCIS and we treat it like an invasive breast cancer when in fact our goal for this patient is to identify that she's at risk for invasive breast cancer. And the question is how much prevention do you want to do for her to get her first invasive breast cancer? So that's kind of my personal approach on it and the discussion I have with patients. So I think that there are clearly women who are good for observation. The ECOG 5194 study reported it recently, it's 12-year outcome, and in all comers, the in-breast recurrence risk was around 12 to 14% at around 10 to 12 years, half of those being invasive and half of them DCIS. We reported out RTOG 9804, and at seven years, we took 700 women and randomized them after lumpectomy who are low-risk DCIS to either observation or radiotherapy, and at seven years, the risk was 7% for those who were not irradiated and 1% for those who were irradiated. But the reality is those should not, meaning that you should not or not have radiation, but should inform your conversation with patients. So what I tell patients is that I think when your risk of an invasive breast cancer gets more than 4 or 5% in the next 10 years, because that's double what the population would be for the average mid-50-year-old woman, then I think you should think about interventions. I think that, especially if you're otherwise a healthy person, that becomes your most life-threatening risk. Like it or not, the best thing you can do to reduce risk after lumpectomy from DCIS is radiation. Now, most recently, we see an 80% relative reduction across all the prior four trials. It's 50%. 
I think if you're worried about your risk to the contralateral breast and you want to reduce even more, particularly if you have a family history of breast cancer, I do think adding five years of tamoxifen and or anastrozole is reasonable if you're in the right age, if you're postmenopausal, right, and pre-60 for the anastrozole now based on the most recent studies, B35 studies. But I think it does need to be personalized. I don't think we should make patients make that decision on their own, but I think we need to know their value system so we can help them come to a good decision about what to do. So I have patients who come in and say, I want radiotherapy no matter what. I can't tolerate any risk. And I say, okay, let's make it safe. Let's keep your heart and lung out of the field. We don't have invasive cancer or that's what we'll do. Then I have patients who say, I don't want any radiotherapy at all. And I say, okay, this is your risks. And if you're comfortable with that, here's your follow-up program. So for the people in between, though, who are really undecided, who come because they want low risk, but they don't want to go through the radiotherapy, I think that's who the DCIS recurrence score is really great for, because it gives them an individual number that they can look at and say, okay, here's my personal risk. So that's really where I see the DCIS recurrence score being helpful in those where the practitioner or the patient are not clear about what they're going to recommend. I think that helps oftentimes shape that conversation and help you make a decision. Globally, in your own practice, what fraction of the time do you end up using the DCIS recurrence score? Well, we just finished a decision-making study on it, so it's not really a fair. We were trying to use it as much as possible in those patients. But probably of those patients we studied, you know, most patients come in with a pretty clear idea of what they want, and that's the challenge here. So I would say probably in a low-grade DCIS, I personally radiate about 50% of the patients I see. We either recommend or they elect for themselves to get radiation. And I can see most of those people come in with a pretty clear-cut idea of what they want. At least 25, 30%, I think, would benefit who are really undecided and they go back and forth and they're asking their surgeon, they're asking their primary care doctor. I mean, they're just really undecided. Even if we recommend it for them, those are the patients that I think really benefit. It gives them a personalized piece of information to their DCIS. Let's talk a little bit about local recurrence, both after breast conservation as well as mastectomy. Any comments on some of the clinical issues that come up there that you think are important to think about? You know, I think this is a really important concept because I think the whole idea of salvage, I think, is what you're getting. Someone who's had a first local regional treatment and now has had a recurrence. And particularly as we de-escalate our initial local regional therapy, we're trying to say not every patient needs whole breast radiation in invasive breast cancer. We're trying to say not every patient needs radiation after lumpectomy for DCIS. So I think we, though, then have to look at, well, if we're not doing it up front, what's the best treatment afterwards when they have a salvage treatment? Standardly, as you know, the treatment has been mastectomy. And even in patients who've had, for instance, the MAM, there was a big registry by the American Society of Breast Surgeons, you know, the mammocyte registry, where women who had a very partial breast irradiation who were all mostly women over age 50 with one centimeter node negative tumors, when they recurred after their mammocyte, 75% of them got a mastectomy instead of another trial at breast conservation. And again, I think that's just something as we as an oncology community just have to figure out how do we salvage patients who and say that they continue to want to keep their breasts. Right now, the standard treatment after an in-breast recurrence, after your first breast conservation is mastectomy. 
I will tell you there have been now two trials where the data looks really good for patients who want a second lumpectomy, especially there, as you know, a recurrence more than three to five years after their first cancer surgery oftentimes is a new breast cancer in that breast, and it doesn't carry with it the same risk for sub-distant metastases and subsequent failure as if you have a recurrence in the first two years or so. And for those patients, they get a repeat lumpectomy if cosmetically it looks like it's going to be reasonable for them. And then they get a partial breast irradiation treatment afterwards to that site to try to reduce down the second local recurrence. And that data looks pretty good so far. So that's an option for some women. Any comments about management of patients who have local recurrence after mastectomy? Well, they need comprehensive. So if they've not had radiotherapy before, they do at that time need to have their local recurrence excised if feasible, have comprehensive radiation of the chest wall and draining lymphatics, the supraclavicular axillary and internal mammary. And the same thing, they need a systemic therapy treatment. If they're triple negative, in that case, it'd be chemotherapy. Or if it's hormone sensitive, again, anti-endocrine therapy, including a HER2 strategy if it's positive. I think what I personally like when the patient has a recurrence, particularly you're not sure if it's going to be as sensitive to the systemic therapies again, I think it's helpful in that case. You really can't call it neoadjuvant because they're recurrent, but I think it's helpful if they get primary systemic therapy first so you can see response of that recurrent cancer. You know, respectful of the fact that you want to get that excised and they get their local regional treatment ultimately. But I also think that that's a really nice strategy in patients who have a local recurrence, either um, post mastectomy. I'm curious for your comments regarding out of control local recurrence on the chest wall and breast cancer. How often do you see that nowadays? And any new innovations that have come out and the patient's already gotten radiation therapy? So I think that there's, we still see a fair amount of it, actually, mostly because it's, you know, hidden under an implant, it's in the internal mammaries, and it's gotten quite large, or it's in, also, as you know, the supraclavicular space can get quite expanded and full before a patient will notice what's going on there. There's nothing specifically in the chest wall. So those are, shouldn't use out of control, but they're bulky recurrences that were subclinical until detected. In those cases, I think if they've been radiated before, one possibility is to use hyperthermia if it's available. There actually has been a randomized trial that shows the addition of hyperthermia with radiation can be helpful. What about hyperthermia alone? So I think hyperthermia alone is less well studied, and it really depends on how much radiation the person has had. But in general, the best results has been hyperthermia with radiation. There are certain things, hyperthermia with nanoparticles coming that have been used and investigated, particularly with conjugated drug. And those are phase one investigations that are also worthwhile. We often will consider partial re-irradiations in patients. So we've done this quite a bit in our own center. Our preference is, again, that you know radiation does better with microscopic disease. So we recommend the patient get additional systemic therapy to best response, resect what's grossly there, and then where surgery really can't go, which is usually the level three space of the axle and the supraclavicular, the internal mammary regions, we'll come in and focally re-irradiate those. That's been what we have put together here. So another person who's on the same audio program is Kelly Hunt. And when I spoke with her, she was talking about the issue of anaplastic large cell lymphoma in patients with implants something which I didn't know too much about, but she's been involved with looking at that. Any experience with that or thoughts about it? No, I really haven't. I've seen it reported. I've not personally run into that. 
So, you know, I've practiced long enough that I've had, you know, seen angiosarcomas after radiation, some of the rare kind of solid tumors we see, but I've not personally seen that. I've certainly read about it, so no personal comment on it.